Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with the election of a far-right coalition in Italy, led by Giorgia Meloni of the Brothers of Italy Party, which has its roots in a neo-fascist party founded in 1946 that was hostile to the anti-fascist republic created after the war. Joining us is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection and propaganda. She is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, the recipient of the Guggenheim Fulbright and other fellowships, and an advisor to protect democracy. She is also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and The Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC and other networks. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, and we'll discuss her article at The Atlantic, The Return of Fascism in Italy. Then with the House January 6th committee about to have what is thought to be its final hearing on Wednesday, we will get an update on the many stories swirling around the inquiry and the many others dogging Trump, and speak with Andrew Feinberg, a reporter covering the White House, Congress and the 2022 elections for The Independent, where his latest articles are Trump lawyers fighting to keep January 6th testimony from grand jury and Capitol rioter who got call from White House on January the 6th is identified. Then finally, following Trump's embrace of QAnon at a recent rally in Ohio and his posting of a picture of himself on his Truth Social platform wearing a Q label pin, with a caption, the storm is coming, we'll look into whether Trump is trying to drag the country into a civil war and speak with Barbara Walter, a professor of political science and the raw chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances, and the strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she serves on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of the new book, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection, and propaganda. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, the recipient of Guggenheim Fulbright and other fellowships, and an advisor to protect democracy. She's also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and The Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC, and other networks. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, and she has an article at The Atlantic, The Return of Fascism in Italy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Thank you. 
So it has happened. Uh, <laughs> the right got elected, oh, barely, uh, and the left didn't show up, or they're disunited. And this neo-fascist party got 26% of the vote. Its roots are in the Movimento Social Italiano, the MSI, which is a post-World War II party, which essentially tried to rewrite history and portray Mussolini as being unfairly treated and conversely that the partisans, the anti-fascist partisans were the problem as opposed to the Nazis and the, and the fascists. So not a very good situation. So let's start with why it happened. What happened to the left in Italy? Yeah, it's a historic uh, defeat for the left, including in places like Tuscany and Emilia-Romagna, uh, which were historically left. Um, many people voted for other parties. It was a very low voter turnout, so people used to vote for the center-left didn't vote. And this is uh, in part because the center-left um, has uh, not does not have a clear message. Uh, it does not have a clear appeal anymore to working class voters, or it's not perceived as having answers to economic inequality, which uh, Italy has almost 25% uh, unemployment in some areas. So, and it's also perceived as a kind of elite establishment party. It's been in and out of so many coalitions. It just doesn't have a compelling identity. And so Maloney you know, there's the novelty that she's a woman, but her party was, which is only from 2012, it's it's fairly new, was able to um, seem like an authentic and new force with new ideas. And the, the left didn't have a good answer for that. But it seems, though, that social democratic parties across Western Europe have eroded and some have collapsed in France and even in the, some of the Scandinavian countries, the, the right just eked out a thin majority in uh, Sweden. I guess to some extent the Social Democrats in Germany are coming back, but they also plunged almost into oblivion. So, And France, of course, is, a, is probably the best example, is it not, of a, of a dominant party for decades suddenly almost disappearing. Yeah, and so this is, yes, so what's going on in Italy is uh, a symptom of broader things. The thing about Italy, though, it's also a harbinger often. Um, it's a kind of been a laboratory for politics. I mean, fascism was invented there. And then in the 1990s, Silvio Berlusconi broke the taboos, and he was the first person in Europe to bring neo-fascists into the government and normalized during his three governments, he normalized extremism. In fact, Forza Italia, his party, eventually fused with the neo-fascist party. And, and that's actually why Maloney's party was founded, because the extreme right didn't have autonomy. So in a sense, it, it makes sense that Italy is the place to have a, a far-right government led by a woman for the first time. Um, because Italy, and, and this is a sign of things to come, many people thought it would be Le Pen, but there's a whole generation now of, she's younger, but there's a whole cohort, let's say, of female leaders who say that they are standing for women's rights and true female identity, and they're actually taking away reproductive rights, which is what Maloney's party has done in places it already, places it already governs. 
So just to quickly go through the numbers, even though they're incomplete, Giorgio Maloney's Brothers of Italy party got 26.2%. Coming in second was the Democratic Party, which is now the main opposition bloc, with 19.06%. Then the Five Star Movement with 15.41%. And those two should have united, mm-hmm. but they didn't. Uh, and then on the right, the next one down is La Ligue, 8.78%, and then Forza Italia, Berlusconi at 8.12%. And those two together with Brothers of Italy make the will be able to take over the um, the Assembly and the uh, Senate, right? Yeah, they'll have a they'll have a clear majority in Parliament. But the League, um, Matteo Salvini's party, did very badly uh, considering what it used to do, and so neither Berlusconi or Salvini are going to pr- maybe have much clout in this new government. Um, we'll have to see what happens. But I'm glad you mentioned the fact that the Democratic Party did not ally. Um, this is a we know that's a lesson for our country too. You have to have unity. Um, to beat back fascists, <laughs> and and they not only should have allied uh, with the Five Star Movement, and they chose not to, but they were fractured among themselves, and that hurt their message. So, hopefully, this can be a learning, uh, a shock learning experience for the center left to re- have a revamp of its strategy and its message, uh, because the Right and Maloney has a very clear message. There's a very scary, um, there's footage of her, anyone can look it up, speaking at a Vox rally in Spain. That's the far right party. And she's very much the demagogue. She's screaming, very Mussolinian. And she says yes to this, you know, yes to true womanhood, no to, you know, gender ideology. Yes to this, no to this. So she's very much mastered the the kind of Manichaean, um, you know, polarized worldview of the demagogue. And and we don't want the center left to become like that. That's not its nature. But it needs to, um, I think that in general, um, democratic parties can learn something from the way the right uh, creates a sense of belonging through its rallies and its slogans. Um, it's, you know, look at Trump, be such a good sloganeer, as was Mussolini. Well, the speech that Giorgio Maloney gave before the Spanish right-wing party, Vox, that you just mentioned, was very similar to the speech that Viktor Orban gave recently to CPAC <laughs> down in, yeah. in Dallas. And it looks as if that's going to be an alliance, isn't it? This new Italian government on the right with Orban and she's talking a good game because she wants money from the EU right about wanting to continue supporting Ukraine but uh, frankly I don't trust her what do you do you trust no. her? Oh no not at all in fact you know until it was inconvenient to do so she was totally pro-Putin um, she's wishing you know in 2018 she tweeted you know how happy she was on his re-election saying it was the will of the people and her, co- her governing coalition is the most pro-Putin coalition that you could find. With Salvini used to wear a T-shirt, you know, louding Putin. And Berlusconi goes way back. With, he became like Putin's mouthpiece way before Trump did. So I don't, I don't trust her at all. In fact, it's important. I've been emphasizing how extreme she is because she's calling herself now a conservative, which is what 
all these people are doing. Viktor Orban says he's in a liberal democracy. There's nothing democratic about Hungary. The GOP is saying it's a conservative party. So you're you're going to see a lot more links also between the GOP and Italy under Meloni. She's very close with Bannon, with Steve Bannon. He's one of her advisors. Well, let me um, touch on Berlusconi. You just brought him up. And is he a kingmaker here by any chance? I mean, he's been, a, obviously he's 85 years old and he's been around since the 90s. But for some reason or other, I think he was mislabeled as being the representative of the centre-right. But he sort of has kind of mafia kind of attitudes, tremendous corruption, debauchery, etc. Great pal of Putin's. And what they have in common, Putin and Berlusconi and Trump, although Trump is a wannabe mafia boss, Putin is a genuine mafia boss. How would you describe Berlusconi? Well, um, Berlusconi's right-hand man, Marcello Dell'Utri, who was a senator in his uh, party, but also was uh, took the reins of Berlusconi's, one of his huge conglomerates, um, he was convicted of mafia association. He was his closest confidant, his closest, again, the right-hand man, he was convicted of mafia association. <laughs> so... That, that tells you uh, about Berlusconi and the Mafia. It's like one, one degree of distance. Um, but Berlusconi is the kingmaker. And in fact, Maloney is indebted to Mussolini, but she's also indebted to Berlusconi, who gave her the first ministerial post she had in his uh, last government, which was, again, a very far-right government, which fused his party with the extreme party. So she's been created also by him. So he recently, Berlusconi, said that the West forced Putin into this war in Ukraine, and then he tried to clean up the statement. But that's clearly how he feels. So yeah. Yeah, is, Put is Putin going to benefit from this political realignment to the far right in Italy? I mean, who knows with Putin, you know, what's going on. Um, but, but it's the most pro-Putin governing coalition that has that there's been in, in forever, I would say. And Berlusconi, um, I start my book Strongman with the story of the Berlusconi-Putin partnership. It's really important. He was not only uh, the mouth, the American ambassador called uh, Berlusconi the mouthpiece of Putin. They were doing dirty deals together around uh, Putin's Nord Stream pipeline. Um, and there was a parliamentary uh, investigation. It's, it's very proto-Trump what went on there between Berlusconi and Putin. They're, they're very close and he still wants to do, you see that he still defends him any opportunity possible. So could you describe Berlusconi as a combination of Putin and Rupert Murdoch? Um, I don't know about the Putin part. I mean, he's an ally of Putin and every, he also was an ally of Gaddafi, but he's definitely, you know, somewhat of a Murdoch figure. Um, and he's, uh, and Trump, you know, takes after him. I mean, Berlusconi had an enormous uh, personality cult. He controlled the media. Um, he was, he's just hugely powerful. And the lesson for the United States is that, you know, he, his personality cult only deflated when he was uh, prosecuted and he was banned for, from politics for five years. 
and he was too old to go to prison, so he never went to prison, but he was, uh, he's a convicted criminal. This is who Maloney is allying with, and wiretapping, bribery, sex with a minor, fraud, I mean, it goes on and on. And yet, here he is back again. <laughs> so, um, but his party only got in the single digits. So prosecution started the end of that party. It's very important to prosecute uh, high-level criminals like that with mafia associations. Well, he's obviously, uh, he was prosecuted, but he's come back. And even though his party didn't do that well, are you suggesting, Ruth, that he's going to be the tail that wags the dog of uh, Georgia Maloney? No, it's not. It's I don't know. It's not clear what, what influence he's going to have. It's really not. It's going to depend how much she wants to compromise at the beginning to win over um, kind of more mainstream conservatives who who perhaps are not, because um, Berlusconi is quite out there, as you saw with the Putin statement. So she may, it, it'll be interesting to see who she appoints to key positions like finance minister, um, how much she's going to try and really uh, act like she's a conservative, a centrist, how much anyone will believe her, but that will be based on her actions. Well, I mean, isn't she also angling to get EU money? Yeah, so she will have to, um, I mean, Italy is just a huge, it's a far bigger partner than Hungary, it's far more central, so she can't jeopardize that, and, and Italy's not in good shape economically, so she needs to, that will be a constraint. Um, and But Berlusconi's fairly, you know, his party only got, what is it, 7% or so? He's a fairly 8%. Uh, 8.12, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a minor figure at this point, um, although, yes, a kingmaker in the past. Well, is there anything the EU can do? Her party were, have made aggressive insults against uh, Ursa von der Leyen, the EU chief. They basically are crowing that they're uh, destroying the uh, left-wing establishment. I guess some of that could be <laughs> Stephen Bannon's language or his his fantasy. What is it going to take, do you think, to either revive the left in that country or for the EU to rein her in? Because I think we've both established that uh, you can't trust her and that she's just posturing about being, you know, more of a centrist. And probably her real instincts are more in line with Berlusconi. Yeah, well, we can look to what's happened with um, Orban, and the EU's been very slow to react to this double standard, but now they have this rule of law conditionality clause, where in theory your funds could be seriously reduced if you do not obey the rule of law. But that is, you know, Orban's been there for 10 years. He's had lots of time to convert Hungary into an autocracy. We would have to see what she actually does if they want to reform the constitution, if they really start chipping away at Italy's democratic structures, then the EU would have uh, a mechanism now um, in this rule of law conditionality clause to actually act. Um, but that's for the future. We, we, we don't we don't know what will happen. But with Bannon saying over here he wants to deconstruct the administrative state, which is what the Supreme Court is now doing, they're taking their cues from Stephen Bannon, the Italian 
constitution that you're talking about that might be in danger and might be uh, revised or <laughs> destroyed, it's a post-World War II anti-fascist constitution, broadly speaking, is it not? Yes, and that's why people are afraid that they would like to reform it. Um, the constitution was written and it was enacted in 1948 specifically as an anti-fascist. It, it's, it's the first article is inscribing anti-fascism. It also uh, has many checks on um, you know, executive power, on a strong presidential figure, which is something that they have said that they would like to change. And so that's a red light. Um, you know, it's a red flag for the center left. Um, and that's the kind of thing that we will look for to see what their intentions are. Well, Ruth Ben-Ged, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ruth Ben-Ged, who's an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection and propaganda. She is Professor of History and Italian Studies at New York University, the recipient of Guggenheim, Fulbright and other fellowships, and an advisor to Protect Democracy. She's also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and The Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC and other networks. And her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, and she has an article at The Atlantic, The Return of Fascism in Italy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on the many stories swirling around the January 6th inquiry, which has its final hearing on Wednesday, and the many other inquiries dogging Trump. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andrew Feinberg, a reporter covering the White House, Congress, and the 2022 elections for The Independent, where his latest articles are Trump lawyers fighting to keep January 6th testimony from grand jury, and Capitol rioter who got called from White House on January the 6th is identified. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Feinberg. Thanks for having me on again. Well, thanks for joining us, and it's hard to keep track of uh, these many breaking stories about the January 6th commission and all the other, other inquiries going on swirling around Donald Trump, but you've written about the two of the latest, and it sounds like Denver Riggleman, a former Republican congressman, was on 60 Minutes pushing a book and suggesting that there was something really nefarious to this phone call from the White House. It was only a nine-second long phone call. So there's been yeah. a bit of pushback from the committee. I guess, Andrew, the committee's not too happy with Feinberg's book. I mean, with uh, Riggleman's book. Sorry, Riggleman's book, sir. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I, I, I haven't written a book, but I hope I would hope that if uh, I did, uh, they would, you know, enjoy reading the book. I don't know if... Uh, they would be happy with everything in my hypothetical book, but I'd like it to be a good read, you know, okay. hypothetically speaking. All right. I, I stand but, corrected. Anyway. I'm having a senior moment here. I meant Riggleman. And do you think that uh, 
Riggleman is is sort of muddying the waters here with this book. It seems like the the January sixth committee people are a little peeved at him. He he finished working with them back in April, so he's really not current. At least that's my they're, understanding. They're more they're more than a little uh, they're more than a little peeved. Um, they're many many other words that uh, folks I've talked to or uh, been in communication with who are close to the committee. Uh, have used many, many words, none of which uh, I can repeat uh, and uh, not uh, jeopardize uh, the licenses of the stations that broadcast your show. Uh, They are beyond livid uh, with former Congressman Riggleman. Uh, I have not seen uh, the book. Uh, I'm supposed to uh, have a, a copy in hand by tomorrow morning. But I, I have not seen it, so I, I don't want to make any judgments as to how he's framed things or whether he's uh, overhyped anything. Uh, his co-author is a guy named Hunter Walker, who is a former White House press corps colleague of mine uh, from Yahoo News, uh, who I, I know to be a very, very conscientious and uh, very low-key reporter who's who's not going to overhype things, at least in, in my experience. So I don't, I don't want to cast aspersions on uh, either of them. But what I will say is uh, the subsequent reporting that has come out from CNN about uh, the phone call uh, has, I think, poured a bit of cold water on uh, that particular uh, revelation. Uh, the call was, from, uh, was made from a White House landline to the phone number of this uh, this young man who was in the Capitol very briefly on the 6th, uh, although the call was actually made long after he left the Capitol. Uh, but let's just back up a bit. There are many, 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 many phone lines and offices within the executive office of the president. And quite often when there's an outgoing call placed, uh, it, the, the outgoing call will come from a number like the one uh, that was identified in the call records, a a generic number that comes back to the White House switchboard. So it's really not known who made the call. Uh, Some folks I've talked to have suggested that it was uh, some low-level person working in one of the various executive offices of the president uh, agencies, uh, such as the Office of Management and Budget or Office of National Drug Control Policy. There are a whole bunch of them. Domestic Policy Council is another one. Uh, calling up a friend, hey, are you okay? I heard you were in Washington. What's going on? You know, are you, is everything all right? So, and the call well, lasted for you're, nine you're, seconds. I was going to say your nine seconds are up. <laughs> yes, it, sir. Uh, much longer than, than I've been, uh, much shorter <laughs> than I've been talking. I, I apologize. No, I was going to say, this is not the nine seconds that shook the world, surely. No, not at all. Um, that doesn't mean that there weren't other calls placed uh, from the White House to the uh, people in, in the Capitol that day. Uh, there was some reporting that, that I uh, did that I was never really able to get to a, a state where I was comfortable uh, having it published. And I know there are other uh, journalists who were uh, covering the Trump administration who had tips and had uh, information that there was some communication between uh, folks 
at or in the Capitol and uh, folks at the White House that day. But uh, I don't think this is what uh, what uh, that refers to. This is a single phone call that came up in, in call records. And the person that we're talking about here, who is called Anton Lunk, I guess is how you pronounce his name. He's a 26-year-old supporter of former President Trump. He traveled to Washington from Brooklyn, New York, and attended the Stop the Steal rally on the Ellipse, and he apparently got into the building. He actually was uh, with this character known as Baked Alaska uh, in the office of Senator Jeff Merkley. Apparently, they have him on tape talking about killing Nancy Pelosi and raping uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and he had a couple of his friends with him, uh, Francis Connor and Antonio Ferragano. They're basically, I think, in their 20s. He still lives at home with his parents. The judge, and sensing him and his two colleagues, described them as knuckleheads. Yeah, so, he's, a, he's a kid. Right. He doesn't have any apparent connection to uh, any of the organizers or anyone who would otherwise be a person of interest for, for the committee. Uh, so this is not uh, a smoking uh, anything. Right. So let's turn then to the other story that you've written recently about another strand of the many strands uh, swirling around Trump. And of course, the January 6th committee is supposed to have what many are calling its final hearing on Wednesday. So, uh, and of course, they pointed out in response to Denver Riggleman's preemptive appearance to flog his book on 60 Minutes that uh, a lot more has <laughs> happened since Riggleman left working for the committee in April. So they're presumably going to deliver something. But how much is Trump being successful in preventing, for example, uh, Eric Hirschman from testifying before the grand jury? Well, we don't know. Uh, grand jury proceedings are secret. It does uh, appear there has been some reporting, which uh, I and my colleagues at The Independent have not been able to confirm that uh, that people in, in Trump's orbit, his, his current attorneys, are uh, trying to uh, get a judge to block his former attorneys from testifying before the grand jury. Uh, it's unlikely that that will ultimately be successful uh, there, there is a high bar uh, to getting uh, over the hurdle of executive privilege, but it's something that, that has been done before and uh, most likely will be uh, done in, in this case uh, simply because there is a compelling need uh, for the testimony to investigate crimes. And uh, at least since the days of Richard Nixon, investigating crimes uh, pardon the pun, Trump's uh, executive privilege. But already White House counsel Pat Cipollone and also uh, Hirschman, they've testified before the January 6th committee, but Philbin, yes. his deputy, and Cipollone have both appeared before this DOJ grand jury, have they not? Uh, they have, although they have reportedly uh, declined to go into certain details they've they've appeared but uh they have have not been completely uh open books and i think what's happened there is prosecutors have decided that in those cases half a loaf is better than no loaf at all and uh, they've you know, taken the testimony 
as it's as it's come to them and i suspect it's been uh pretty fruitful uh, on it on its own without having to uh, to fight them for for more details uh, in other court proceedings but then again grand jury proceedings are secret and so there may be uh, other things that have happened that we don't know about and uh, given how that uh, that works might never know about but apparently what the DOJ is looking into is the meeting that took place the day before January the 6th in the White House when Trump was leaning on Vice President Pence to go along with essentially not certifying Biden's victory. And that was the meeting in which Hirschman talked about in his testimony before the January 6th committee where he just made fools of, of Eastman, Trump's lawyer and others and said, maybe you should get yourself a good criminal lawyer. That, I believe he had that conversation with, uh, with Eastman the day after, on, on the 7th. Okay. But, uh, but, but it is true that uh, Hirschman did discuss a lot of things with the committee that uh, Trump is trying to, I think, prevent him from discussing with the grand jury uh, for obvious reasons. A grand jury can indict him, a congressional committee cannot. Uh, on the other hand, if the select committee is wrapping up its work as uh, as it does appear, uh, all that information uh, will most likely go straight to the Justice Department as soon as they're done. Um, so I, I don't think uh, even a, a temporary delay in uh, Mr. Hirschman's testimony will keep what he has to say from getting in front of grand jurors. So just in the last minute then, Andrew Feinberg, is there anything that struck you as being, you made a joke about there's no smoking guns there. Well, is there any new smoking guns apart from the ones that uh, we've hit and we'll probably hear more about on Wednesday? Well, something we may very well see on Wednesday is footage from this documentary about Roger Stone that uh, uh, some, I think, Dutch filmmakers were we're shooting uh, before and you know, during this, uh, the sixth. Roger Stone uh, has, uh, for some time, at least uh, at the time, had this film crew with him, and he was mic'd up and everything. And uh, they, uh, I think, they resisted giving the footage to the committee because uh, they were claiming it was a, a work of journalism, not just a, a documentary uh, or. Some people may say that you know, journalism and documentary are one and the same, just you know, one is a form of the other. But uh, they did not uh, turn their footage over as easily as the other two documentary filmmakers who have uh, provided footage to the committee. But this appears uh, to be, from what I've heard, a much more intimate uh, look at what uh, Mr. Stone was doing in the days leading up to the 6th. And it's possible that there may be more bombshells uh, because uh, Roger Stone uh, has been an associate of Donald Trump's going back decades. And uh, if anyone who had these connections to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, which Mr. Stone does, uh, could have been a conduit between those extremist groups and the former president, it would be him. Uh, but I don't have any more visibility into exactly what they're going to show than, than you do. So I won't speculate any further. Well, we'll all stay tuned, and I thank you very much for joining us here today, Andrew Feinberg. Thank you. 
And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Feinberg, who's a reporter covering the White House, Congress, and the 2022 elections for The Independent, where his latest articles are Trump lawyers fighting to keep January 6th testimony from grand jury, and Capitol rioter who's got call from White House on January the 6th is identified. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether Trump is trying to drag the country into a civil war. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Barbara Walter, who is a professor of political science and the Raw Chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances, and the strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she serves on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of the new book, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. Welcome to Background Briefing, Barbara Walter. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Barbara. And what did you make of the recent rally in Ohio at which... President, former President Trump appeared to embrace the QAnon cult, and there were many of them in the crowd, and they responded with this peculiar one-fingered Nazi-type yeah. salute. And then a few days later, Trump posted a picture of himself on his Truth Social platform wearing a Q lapel pin with the caption, the storm is coming. So some people are interpreting that, uh, that Trump is either trying to drag the country into a civil war, or he's signaling to Attorney General Garland that if you indict me, I'm going to unleash these QAnon people. What do you think? So I was not surprised at all that he's embracing um, these conspiracy theories and the group that that is at the forefront of that. You know, this is a man who cares about power over everything else. He's an anti-Democrat. He has no interest in maintaining America's democracy. In fact, he he actively would like to subvert it um, to get himself back in power and once in power to stay there. Um, you know, he's he has been embracing lies, um, you know, throughout his career, certainly while he was in the White House and then most clearly with the big lie of the 2020 election. So it's it's not even a, a small step for him to embrace QAnon conspiracy theories. And and by holding these rallies, by by playing to their their beliefs, he gets this adoring audience, which of course feeds his ego and he enjoys that as well. So um, you know, I Ultimately, I don't know if he wants to foment violence. I don't know if he actually believes these theories or not. But but we do know that he wants to get back in power. He wants that desperately, and he's basically willing to, to do anything to get himself there. And one of the theories about why he's so desperate is that uh, he feels, first of all, he wanted to stay in power in order to avoid all these lawsuits that are coming thick and yeah. fast. And the theory is that 
he's going to announce at some point soon that he's running for president in order to get some protection, even though exactly. it may not work for him. Exactly. So, so given, though, that this is a such a bizarre fringe cult that believes that the Democrats drink baby's blood and yeah. cavort with de demons and... Uh, I mean, it's no point in going into it. It's so off the wall. Yes. The question then arises, why are the Republican Party, the, one of the two American parties, I know Trump essentially controls the Republican Party, but one would think that they, didn't, they wouldn't want to go down this rabbit hole. Well, I, I think the Republican Party is in a really, really tough situation. Um, they've been in a tough situation for... You know, the last probably since, you know, the early 2000s, where um, they understood that if they continued to invest in a white Christian base, that they would become increasingly uncompetitive in a democratic system. Um, and, um, you know, after after I think it was o Obama won, won the 2008 election, there was a coming to Jesus moment where the Republican leadership wrote this letter and they said, you know, we have to expand our base. Um, if we don't expand our base, if we don't reach across racial and and religious lines, you know, we're we are not going to be able to win elections anymore. And and I think that's what they would have wanted to do. And then Trump came along, and was quite effective not not only in 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 speaking to white Christians, but in in motivating them to to be to go out to the polls and to bring him to power. And and now they have this party that that. You know they they can't move away from the base because they are so energized and they 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 turn out at very high rates, and um and if they criticize Trump they they lose elections so they're in a terrible terrible position where they have to decide at this point do they do they you know try to broaden the base and and therefore lose elections lose the the far right vote or or do they essentially try through legal means to to limit to to reduce participation to to do these very undemocratic things and and that they've chosen the latter it's it is really a terrible position for one of the two big parties to be in and they are choosing an anti-democratic path but i've spoken to reporters who covered the ohio rally and they said that the qanon crowd that was there, and particularly prominent in front and with that peculiar one-fingered uh, Nazi salute that they do, that they're kind of like camp followers. They follow him around from, yeah. from rally to rally. There weren't that many Ohioans, and apparently the Trump people are very careful about framing the cameras in such a way that people don't see empty seats. So could you make the case that this is like you know, the bottom of the barrel, he's scraping here. <laughs> if the best crowd you can get is QAnon, you're not exactly on fire. I think that's a, a perfect characterization that, you know, Trump, Trump desperately wants to become president again. He desperately wants well he he obviously enjoys the accolades he he enjoys the attention he enjoys the sort of hero worshiping it feeds his ego but it's it's not clear that that 
that he has the staying power to to be able to get back in the White House. Um, now, the longer that he can try to convince people that he he still is very popular, um, you know, if he can grow this movement, you know, he he's trying for the nomination. He needs to get the Republican nomination, and 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 he he needs to convince. Um, you know, Republicans that that he's a, a viable candidate. And I think this is where he is at right now. And and it's it's not looking that good for him. Well, if he announces, of course, which is, I, I believe, behind the scenes, he's furious with uh, Governor DeSantis, who's getting a lot of attention. Yeah. So there's a collision coming up there. But to get to the subject of your book, how civil wars start and how to stop them. If there is to be a civil war and if Trump is pushing us in that direction, what's your sense then of the extent to which the people that would police it or, or restrain yeah. it or stop it, the the thin blue line, how yeah. much of has the military and in particular the police departments become infected with this peculiar either QAnon bizarre thinking or the ideology of the three percenters and of course the three percenters yeah. and other militias three percenters believe that only three percent of the american people supported the american revolution yeah. the theory being that it only takes a few people to start a revolution yeah so um you know if a second civil war happens here in the united states it won't look anything like the first civil war so that's an important point to make because people when you talk about a civil war, they think about the 1860s version of a civil war with two large armies, one's the military, one's a very organized um, rebel army. They're meeting each other on large battlefields. And, and that is just not what a 21st century civil war is going to look like. Um, if, if war breaks out here, it's going to be more of an insurgency. It'll be more like sustained, um, you know, a sustained terrorist campaign. Um, where you have different militias who, who are all over the country, um, some you know operating essentially independently, targeting um, civilians, not targeting the military. And and what happens then is it does matter how local law, law enforcement reacts. And one of the things that groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, these far right militia groups, one of the things that they actively pursued was to infiltrate the military, um, uh, to, to have soldiers get experience and training in foreign wars so that they could come back and, and be more effective fighters. We, we know that they've, they've attempted to infiltrate um, law enforcement so that they can collect information um, about their, their efforts. And, and we know that if you go to rural areas where sheriffs um, you know, are quite powerful and they're elected officials, they represent you know the the preferences of the local population, and many of those many of those sheriffs are hostile, very very hostile to to the federal government, for example. So so I think you know if you do start to have this this type of guerrilla warfare breaking out, where minority groups and opposition leaders are targeted, where infrastructure is targeted, where is this where is this attempt to sort of sow chaos around the country? Um, and you have law enforcement in those places sympathetic to these groups, um, then that becomes a real, real problem in terms of how you get that back under control. That sounds like echoes of the 
problems facing the FBI investigating the civil rights murders in, in the South. Exactly. Well, and, and, you know, what you had during during Reconstruction, what you'd had during the Jim Crow era in the South was essentially, a, you know, a, a lengthy siege where you had militia groups and you had organizations like the Ku Klux Klan who were were operating as as enforcers of of segregation as as you know vigilantes to to ensure that whites maintained um, control and whites maintained political office um, and and you could see that more more broadly throughout the United States if if another um, civil war were to happen. So Barbara Walter, just looking at this pantheon of militia groups and and of course QAnon as well, is their bark worse than their bite? <laughs> Oh gosh, you know, that's the $40,000 question. I think I think every time that you have extremists who are who are gaining power, the first reaction of of average citizens and average citizens uh, you know are always more moderate. The first reaction is, oh, they're they're so over the top. They're they're so extreme, nobody's going to believe them. Um, you know, they're never going to gain any headway because everybody's going to see them for who exactly who they are. And, 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 and then, and then people are surprised, you know, Adolf Hitler wrote Mein Kampf and he laid out exactly what he was going to do. He laid out, um, essentially the, the extermination of Jews across, across Europe. Uh, uh, you know, when Germans first read this, they, they you know, this is a madman, you know, not, he'll never get anywhere. Um, but you know, in times of change, in times of uncertainty, at times when when people are feeling, um, you know, sort of that their place in society is being threatened, that they're being downgraded, um, they you know they will often grasp onto to um, you know theories, scapegoating theories um, that will make them feel good, and they will follow individuals who promise. Um, to to make them great again, you know, no matter how extreme that person may appear, they're they're following a pipe dream, and 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 you know they 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 often will will accept even even things that seem ridiculous on the surface. So just to broaden it out into foreign policy a little in the last few minutes here, Barbara, Putin has a good day today because of the far right. Yes, coming to power in Italy. Uh, I don't believe that Georgia Maloney is, when she says that she's going to continue to support Ukraine. Yeah, and we know that Berlusconi yeah. is in the coalition. It's a close pal of Putin's, and there's kind of an axis there of, of mafiosi type. And we know Putin runs a mafia state, and yeah, and Berlusconi is tied to the mafia, and Trump is a wannabe mafia don. So. The thing that I, I wish that the Democrats would be pointing out in the in this campaign is the extent to which Trump is Putin's instrument of division. I mean, it's not you can't blame Trump for all the divisions in this country, but you can certainly make the case that he's exacerbated them. And in supporting Trump in 2016, Putin had it covered because had Hillary won, as most people expected, Trump would have gone around the country for the for four years of her tenure leading rallies of lock her up, lock her up. And here yeah. he is, a defeated president, yet he dominates our attention. We're talking about him. He controls one of the two major parties in this country, and he's going to run again for president. And we're talking about him dividing the country to the extent 
of a civil war. Now, this has to go beyond Putin's wildest dreams. Yeah, so so Putin's greatest talent is that he's a master propagandist. Um, that is his bread and butter. He knows how to use misinformation, disinformation um, to manipulate um, people's beliefs, to tear apart societies. And he has wielded this weapon against liberal democracies across Western Europe, um, across Central and Eastern Europe, and and in North America since the late 2000s. It's it's the untold story that that most people just can't wrap their mind around. That he has troll factories, in skyscrapers on the outskirts of of cities like Saint Saint Petersburg, that do nothing but churn out divisive material, um, false material designed to undercut people's trust in democracy. Um, he was behind the movement to convince um, Brits to vote for Brexit. He's behind uh, the movement to get a far-right party elected in Sweden, in, in France, in Italy. Um, his goal is, is to weaken democracies so that um, Russians themselves don't want a democracy in their own country. He's, he supported... Um, uh, Donald Trump, um, you know, having Donald Trump in power was going to weaken the United States, um, and he supported um, narratives that have uh, that have been really effective at dividing the women's movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the, I mean, you name it, movements on the right and the left. He he doesn't really care, um, and um, and he's been effective. Uh, democracies around the world were on the increase for for over a hundred years. Um, everybody thought that the world was just going to become more and more democratic. And then in 2010, that that shifted. And since 2010, almost every single year, um, there have been um, more autocracies emerging in the, in, around the world than than democracy. Um, and and Putin is a big reason why this has happened. So just in closing, the governor of California speaking uh, over the weekend at uh, the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas, accused uh, the Democratic Party of being too timid uh, mm -hmm. and that the Republicans are crushing them in terms of their election campaigns. So can what we're talking about resonate if the Democrats decide to talk about it? I know they're not really making a strong case about the overt efforts on the part of the Republican Party to create a one-party state by rigging the next elections, by literally taking over the electoral machinery in this country. It ought to be evident to everybody that this is happening. So that's one area where they seem to be dropping the ball. But in terms of our discussion, do you think this could resonate if they could articulate a message about <laughs> the idea that, you know, this is Putin's guy and We've seen this bad movie before, but, you know, we could have Trump, the comeback kid. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Republicans have always been better at messaging than the Democrats. And, and that's because um, they've always been more united. They're, you know, their uh, voters are generally white Christians who live in rural areas. They're, they have... They're ideologically fairly similar. The, the Democrats are this big tent of a mishmash of everything else. And, and so coordinating on a single message becomes much harder. I, even if they were tougher, um, even if they were able to systematically and clearly make the case 
um, and to show with evidence um, that that Putin has been helping Trump once Trump elected um, and has been doing this for quite some time. I don't think it's going to convince anybody who supports Trump. What, partly that's because, you know, the everybody's everybody gets their information from these these their their own media sources um and fox fox tv viewers um are not going to get that message because fox is not going to broadcast it so so it's very hard to get that message across to the other side because nobody is listening to what the other side has to to say and then even in my own conversations you know when i start talking about Putin, um, you know, doing these very, very pursuing these detailed strategies to undercut, to get far right candidates elected across Europe, um, to to pass Brexit, to influence the the 2016 and the 2020 election. Even my my liberal friends start rolling their eyes and they look at me like like I'm a conspiracy theorist. I I think it starts to sound so dystopian that nobody can wrap their head around it. And so it's a message that I think is really hard to get across without sounding crazy yourself because the story is so crazy. Well, indeed, it is the Manchurian candidate. I yes. mean, Trump's first visit to Moscow was on July the 4th of 1987. And they were promising a Trump Tower to build him a Trump Tower. And from what I've learned from KGB sources and CIA sources is that they may well have set him up in uh, in some kind of compromise during that time. Yeah, and exactly. the evidence is that when he, the minute he got back to the United States, he took out full-page ads in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Boston Globe parroting Soviet propaganda against NATO. Yep, yep. So... This is an untold story and needs to be told, surely. It needs to be told and and it needs a spokesperson who is absolutely trusted by all sides. Um, you know, I don't know if, if, if that would be, um, you know, you know, somebody who is beyond reproach, who, who actually just laid it out there for the American public so that they can finally see and believe this is going on. Well, Barbara Walter, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Barbara Walter, who's a professor of political science and the Raw Chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she serves on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of the new book, How Civil Wars Start, and how to stop them. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in three or five Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet boss was singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land here One more light goes out in the middle.